0: It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
1: So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. All that said, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes.
0: Becoming a Next Real member gives you access to all sorts of additional and exclusive content. Plus, you're helping us keep the lights on. Just head to thenextwheelcom slash membership, where you can learn more about becoming a member, which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same as one fancy coffee drink. And you get so much more.
1: Every month, we record a bonus episode exclusively for members. Those episodes cover movies from whatever series we're covering at the moment, or add
0: to previous series. Some movies we've covered that only members get to hear us discuss include The Blues Brothers, The Russia House, Naked Lunch, Independence Day,
1: the hot rock and relic the better one plus members get to vote on what we're going to discuss for those episodes
0: we also record additional pre and post show content in regular episodes that only members get to hear like conversations about similarly themed movies and answering listener questions from our live member chat speaking
1: of our live member chat we record almost all of our episodes in discord where members can chat
0: right along with us live members get access to other members only channels in our discord community as well on top of all that members get all episodes a full week earlier than everyone else in a private next Real feed just for them that includes all the shows in the next reel family the next Real, the film board movies we like sitting in the dark and more new projects on the way to top it all off members don't have to listen to ads we've already eliminated those annoying dynamically inserted ads that let's face it we all hate it we are listening to you we love podcasting for a living and those ads help to pay the bills now we're counting on you dear listener
1: we promise we aren't going back to those terrible dynamically inserted ads that don't relate to us at all all we ask is that you consider supporting the NextReal family of podcasts with a membership.
0: Again, it's $5 per month or $55 per year. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership.
1: Thenextreel.com slash membership. Get your access to early ad-free episodes with bonus content, member bonus episodes, and access to member channels and live streams in Discord by signing up today.
0: I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson.
1: Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. The train is over, you crazy bastard.
2: The train. They strafed it. They sabotaged it. Stop! I want this engine back on the rails! If we had ten times as many men, it couldn't be done. I tell you it will. Do you hear me? I tell you it will! They bombed it.
1: We're talking about the train, Andy. 1964, uh, John Frankenheimer. Uh, are you a big fan of the train? Did you know about the train going into it? Just first time?
0: It's not a first time. I own it. I I really enjoy this film. Solid Frankenheimer. So much better than the Monuments Men.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's
0: just just a film I really love and adore. Burt Lancaster is uh, you know glowering through it. It's just I mean it's really spectacular.
1: Here's the thing. Okay, two things. One, this was my first time seeing this movie. Grateful for it. What an incredible movie. I had a blast. You're going to have to teach me uh, all the good stuff that you always teach me. Uh, Two, I did read a quote uh, that says one of the reasons this movie stands out. I can't quite find the original. where I wrote this down saying that despite being in his early 50s, Lancaster performed his stunts. And I really resented that line. (laughs) I so resented that line. Yes, there was some dangerous stuff. He rolled a lot away from trains. That was scary. And the trains were moving
0: trains. Jumped
1: onto moving trains. That was awesome. Ran ran
0: across trains' roofs. It was all sorts
1: of good stuff. It's possible I resented it because I think I would struggle to do some of those (laughs) tones.
0: And he had injured himself, too. Like, he actually uh, sprained his leg. Uh, I can't remember exactly how he sprained it, but that is the reason they had to incorporate him getting shot in the leg when they uh, escaped the train that first time, so that he could then <laughs> legitimately be limping through the rest of the film. Oh, my God. Uh
1: Man, bury yourself in the part. I I had a a blast with this movie. So the movie itself is it's based on a book, it's a nonfiction book uh, called Le Front de l'Art by Rose Valland, and it is telling the story of this period in time where the Nazis were trying to take and consolidate a lot of the national culture across Europe into Germany, and this was them taking a train full of french works of art to the tune of as they said in the movie i think 10 billion francs lots i mean
0: it, i mean it's you know any artist that you see in a museum these days it's like those big artists picasso monet manet renoir i mean it's just like all of the big names uh, they they were moving the germans were trying to take all of these for themselves back to the home country before the Allies arrived, and it turned into Paris, open city. That's right. That's right. Boy, we're,
1: uh, again, nailing our European uh, uh, war history right now. (laughs) What makes The Train an important film?
0: Aside from being a, a strong representation of what Frankenheimer was doing through his career, and very specifically in the 60s, I mean, if you look at his work in the 60s, I think this just fits right in with... The uh, political thrillers he was doing, you know, before this, he had The Manchurian Candidate, Seven Days in May, and then he did Seconds After This. And, uh, you know, I I think that the types of stories that he was um, really interested in, it just seems to fit in with that whole vibe. And of course, this is, I think, the third of four films that he does with Lancaster in this period. And so they clearly had a good working relationship and telling this story, I think it's a, it's an important one in the scope of this interesting theme about the value of art versus the value of human life. And they talk about this quite a bit through the film. And in the beginning, uh, you know, Labiche is not interested in saving the art because He's already lost too many men and he doesn't want to lose more. He doesn't want to lose anybody else. And he's just like, I just don't care. And it's an interesting point for him as a character when he makes that turn and realizes that there perhaps is value in saving these paintings and kind of what it means to France and large in a larger picture, what it means to humanity to have these paintings continue to be available. And so I think that's one of the the important aspects of this film in the scope of war films is we're getting this complex story talking about, uh, you know, again, it's just it's French resistance versus the Nazis. But it really boils down to, you know, how do we put value on a painting? Where is there more value in a painting over human life? I don't think the film is set to give us any easy answers to that, particularly when we get to that kind of those final moments of the film and some of the final shots, I think it's something that Frankenheimer smartly, you know, puts there for us to then talk about and think about and doesn't necessarily give us the answer. And so I think those are some of the key things. And plus, you know, this is, I I think Frankenheimer himself said this was the last big black and white action film that had been made. And I you know you can see a film like this being made in color, um, you know the big explosions and just everything going on in the train yards and everything. But I think there's something when it comes to just kind of this this um, story that takes place in World War II that just the black and white kind of emphasizes the world of war and it just feels that much more gritty as we watch it. So.
1: I think that's a great, a great point. Just the, the look of the film and particularly those sequences that call out great use of black and white. Like the, you know, the principal caper when they have to mark the the first three train cars with the giant, (laughs) like when they were talking about the plan, I was like, Oh, they're going to put an X on the on the the roofs they end up slathering themselves and the roofs and there's paint like falling off the sides of the train and it just it's one of those things that looks so dynamic and dramatic and it's anxiety producing because come on like there do you know there are like literal nazis right there like they're getting (laughs) practically dripped on uh it's very intense sequences of of that kind of stuff i do think the way the film is structured especially watching it like going into it knowing not much about the film other than it was a frankenheimer film and knowing what frankenheimer brings i was surprised at the level of sort of ethical quandary that he was presenting in this movie like at what cost culture is a it's not a a sideline question for this movie it is central to the movie and the case they make in the beginning when the the colonel walks in to his boss and says, you canceled my train. And he says, yeah, I don't share your love of art and we need the train for other things. And he says, you know, like at that point in the movie, it's it's hard for me as a viewer not to see. Yeah, I can see why he made that decision. At what cost art? It's art. We have real human lives. We're trying to get out of the city. And I think making that case in a way that I can actually empathize with the jerk who said no to a train full of priceless objects of art is kind of a masterstroke. The fact that it comes back later and we have essentially the same conversation with Lancaster, I think it's like an hour and a half into the film, where he's talking to his buddies who are left and they say, you know, what about Papa Boyle and Pasquay? At, like, they died for this. And Lancaster says they're dead. They'll never know. And I think it's, uh, it's Pasquet who says, but we will. We'll know. What happened here? We'll know that we made a choice to dishonor their lives is what I'm reading into it. And I think that is a a significant sort of weight in this movie that makes it um, both an outstanding action film with, like you said, lots of great explosions and sneaking about and climbing on rooftops and all of the great stuff you want out of an action film. But also a thinker and a better thinker than The Monuments Men.
0: Well, and we're getting conversations throughout the film with various characters that really put all of this in perspective for us. When Labiche is hiding out in Christine's hotel, you know, she she gets really pissed at him when he's foolishly trying to go call uh, one of these other towns ahead of time to kind of put this plan into place. And then he kind of comes in and, and hides and, and he stages this whole thing in the kitchen. She gets really pissed because she could have been killed if they figured out that she was lying and kind of uh, hiding whatever it was that he had been up to because at that point she doesn't even know she's somebody whose husband had been killed and you know she you know as she says this other couple had comforted her and then later in the film she says now i'm gonna have to comfort her because now her husband is has been killed and so from her perspective she really is kind of in that side of like you know all of these actions that you're doing, that she she has that conversation. All these actions that you men keep doing just leave us women having to comfort each other. It, it's it's like this look at the side of humanity where you're hurting us by can, kind of continuing with these with this fighting that's going nowhere. But again, just the same perspective. Like she sees how all of these different people, like the station master, who ends up getting killed, and you know she's the one who has to now comfort his wife. Like all of these people are getting killed because they also see the value in protecting the art, and it becomes this this understanding that people have that human life is absolutely valuable and we need to value it. But there is also something about this larger societal need to kind of preserve this art and make sure that it doesn't just get pilfered by the germans and disappears and it's just it's interesting to watch these people start like having that realization to the point where they're willing to die for it i mean i think that's the main strength of the film that we're seeing this change happen over and over again
1: and the fact that the movie opens with a conversation between the woman who moves who runs the museum and our our colonel he's a colonel right i keep calling him a colonel he is colonel he's a
0: colonel colonel Franz von waldheim Right. So Waldheim, it feels like
1: they together, that opening sequence, they understand exactly what you're talking about. And the fact that we get both sides of the occupation having a conversation that centers on the value of art as it is a chronicler of human life and of artists as they are chroniclers of human life. And I think that is a a really important piece because it sets up the ideology of the film right up front, that. Everyone, good guy, bad guy, understands the value of art, whether their actions, as you watch their actions, viewer, whether you're on board with that is the sort of ethical or moral barometer that you're living with. I thought that was a really interesting sort of litmus test of what is ethical good in the space of this kind of a movie
0: it also is a very interesting conversation because as i call him old vw as he's talking to (laughs) uh the, the mademoiselle who runs the museum you know he has that conversation about how he says this is degenerate art you know as a loyal officer of the third reich i should detest it and that's exactly like later when he's talking to that other colonel as you said like that person's like this is disgusting like we don't want to i don't care i don't have any interest in looking at this degenerate art like there is this nazi view of it and you can see how this particular colonel sees himself as almost more evolved because he's able to kind of look past that and see that there is this value in it and that is a really interesting element to include in him as a character and then you know what's so great about that scene is how quickly it turns and his men come in and he just looks over to her as she's all confused and he's like we're taking everything." And it's just such a shock, but it it reveals how, on the one hand, as a person, he can look past the fact that it's art perhaps by Jewish people, by other people that they should be looking down upon and see more in it. But at the same time, he is a greedy Nazi and he's just going to do everything he can to take it.
1: Yeah. And on the other end of the movie, right, that last conversation they have after everything has kind of been resolved and there's wreckage of art all strewn all about the train tracks. He has this conversation with Lancaster's character and he says, you just you just got so lucky. Like the entire ethical sort of moral argument that is made by the film pivots on luck. You got lucky. You had no idea why you were doing what you were doing and you beat me. That's it's fine you know i lost but yeah and then of course we have this just really weirdly controversial it's weird and controversial like lancaster action uh at the end of the film that i think is is a, a sort of stunning testament to what that that waldheim was right or that lancaster's character does understand what he was doing and was really sort of putting an end to the deeds of the german thieves
0: I, yeah, it's definitely an interesting point. I think there's something to that. It is like, I suppose there's a variety of ways you can kind of look and see kind of what he, his decision to basically mow down Von Waldheim at that point. But also, I mean, I think there's, it's interesting because Von Waldheim really kind of like, demeans him quite a bit and he says you know like these like you don't understand what you've done like these paintings in your hands are like putting pearls in the hands of an ape yes like the way that he just like he is so above everybody and i mean even above the other germans who he clearly is upset with because they just don't see the value in everything that he needs and the importance of his plan here and it's such an interesting portrayal in almost how like the nazi mentality can leach itself into one's brain to the point where it's like absolute power corrupts absolutely and he just keeps seeing himself as better than everybody I mean even all the other Nazis like he and sure he's pitching it like you know this is these are worth a lot of money the Reich is going to really want this because it's going to be valuable later down the line but really it's just like he really just wants this stuff and it's such an interesting uh, it's a portrayal of a person who really has kind of moved past the party to a point where he sees himself as better than everybody here absolutely because he's an elitist, and everybody else like at Lancaster represents
1: sort of the populists and and yeah, so he's just he a train man <laughs> he's just a train man. How would he possibly understand the value of something as transcendent as Cezanne, right? like how would he possibly understand? There's no world in which von Waldheim can can grasp that I think that's I, I think that's a great sort of testament uh to the ideology of the film
0: well and it speaks so much uh you have that fantastic conversation between Labiche and i think it's d not who are riding in the train and uh d not is like have you ever seen any of these paintings before and Labiche is no i haven't and he's just like well you know maybe when this is all over we should take a trip to the museum and check it out <laughs> like, <laughs> like that speaks so much to again how the idea of what this represents ends up speaking to them uh, you know inherently like in their soul without ever having even seen it it just like everybody is willing to die for it papa bull right out of the gate is willing to uh, you know put his life on the line and die for this and that's the thing that labish was like holy cow there is something more here and that becomes kind of that that linchpin in his thinking that kind of gets him to change his tune. Again, like they've never even seen this stuff. That's what is so fascinating about the way that uh just it portrays all of these people. It's not just Labiche and Didont and Pesquette and Papa Boule, but it's like, as as Lebish says, it's like the hundreds of people that have been helping in all of these different stops that have been changing the signs and changing the direction and all this stuff just to um get past the the uh, Nazis so that they Uh, take the train a different route it's it's just such a fascinating game that is played here that i think works exceptionally
1: well yeah and and the you know by extension as you broaden the lens of the the film what frankenheimer ends up doing like uh, papa bull i think is the first person to die directly at the hands of the nazis and by the end they're just gunning down you know larger groups of people and you realize at the uh, at least i i sort of realized we're no longer talking about the the culture of of you know a group of art lovers we're talking about the the cost to the sort of heartbeat of the nation of france in this case and and the identity of free europe in this case and and to be able to turn art into this kind of reflection as is i think really expert
0: you you want to talk about people you know bert lancaster we've talked about a few times on the show in various stages of his career He's always an interesting actor to chat about. And uh, this is definitely not the flashy smile Lancaster that we see. I mean, this is very much the grumpy (laughs) Lancaster who I don't think he cracks a smile once in this entire film. He is pretty much a hardcore train man through and through who doesn't want to do anything, you know, out of line and just wants to get through this and, you know, has this turn and becomes this lone figure in the fight. And it's just, it's such a fascinating portrayal for him. I mean, this, you could say that this really kind of fits as far as like the lang- like the grumpy face Lancaster, like this and Sweet Smell of Success, I think are like two perfect Lancaster ones where it's just like he's never smiling in either of those films.
1: Yes. Is there, like, it, it, can we chart the smiling Lancaster uh, across history? Because as we talk about him i can't think of many films that he smiles in uh all of a sudden because i think about like the killers in nuremberg and like maybe he smiled in it here to eternity a little bit yeah Uh, certainly
0: certainly there (laughs) i mean i i think that like when you look at the films that we have talked about uh, of his it's like Killer, sweet smell of success. He's definitely not smiling there. But I think as you look into some of the later films of his, I mean, Elmer Gantry, you know, he's essentially like a tent preacher and it's definitely mm-hmm. pretty smiley in that oh, one. Oh, he's fantastic, smiling in that one. Fantastic film. But you jump into stuff like later in his career that we've talked about, like Atlantic City, uh, Local, hero Local Hero, and uh, Field of Dreams. And I'm like, you know, you're definitely getting some of that very smiley like he's just got such a winning smile and you can kind of see that in some of those other films.
1: Yeah, you're right. That's a good point. Good good point. He does. He is a smiler.
0: He can smile. But man, <laughs>
1: it's easy to look at his list of films and think I don't think he's in a very good mood a lot of the time.
0: <laughs> well, starting in the starting in the 40s, 50s with with kind of like that noir era, you can definitely see him kind of not really having an opportunity to kind of be as romantic or smiley. Uh, right out of the gate, but it certainly it certainly does happen. And then there's the poster of Vengeance
1: Valley, and I think he's literally drawn it with a giant smile right on his on the poster. Which doesn't actually <laughs> sound like a very happy movie. I haven't seen it.
0: It doesn't. It certainly doesn't. But yeah, I mean, but I think he works well here. This is one of those funny films that takes place in Europe, where you have an American playing a Frenchman, you have a British person playing a nazi and you have a lot of other people a lot of french a lot of british playing other frenchmen and nazis and it's just kind of an accent smorgasbord there's really no specific accent designed for everybody like you just don't see Bert lancaster throwing accents around so it's just like okay you've got him and then you've got some of the other people like uh albert remy and charles milo who are playing actual frenchmen and they are French. And so it's just like, then you're kind of in this place where it's like, okay, Frenchman playing French, I get it. But then you throw Bert Lancaster in, you throw Schofield in, and it's just, it's just such an amalgam. I think they made the right
1: choice not making him do an accent, for sure. Schofield pulls it off german
0: does he sound german though like yeah he sounds to me like he's i i just kind of find him kind of just doing the Schofield thing though like he very (laughs) much has a very particular his accent like really feels like the way that he draws out certain syllables i i find it just very Schofield. i don't know what it is about his accent but that's funny yeah but like all the way up through like stuff like quiz show and all the way back to like a man for all seasons like it's just so specifically something about his his voice
1: that's really funny. Do you know what he is? He's like the tofu of accents. It takes on the flavor of whatever he's playing. What a gift! <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah, I and and I liked his menace. I think the you know particularly the the pieces that work so well when we get those hard close-ups toward the end when he is realizing his own loss and he's like covered in sweat and I, I just think it he just
0: plays. Indignant defeat, really well, really, really well. Schofield is uh, just—I mean, he's kind of just a stunning actor, and you know, he's one of those people. I'm like, have we talked about him on this show before? I gotta look and see if 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 we've had the chance to really discuss any anything that he's been in, and I don't think so, which is which is pretty sad. I really enjoy his performances. I think he's such an interesting. Um, actor and the way that he plays the the nazi colonel here and yeah it's just and like there is this level of kind of shock that so many of his people just don't understand the importance of what he's trying to do here and he just gets so belligerent when they're like well why don't i get both cranes and it's like it, it's such an interesting performance to just kind of see him as he struggles with um, trying to make all of this stuff happen and clearly upset at Labiche. I mean, it's a really interesting back and forth between these two, between somebody who is just this lowly trained man and this person who views himself as above everybody. It's, I mean, it's kind of like this perfect balance that we have here. So, where do you stand on the, the love interest? Sort of, not really. Uh, yeah it's hard to say it's a love interest. I just think yeah, it's, it's a, it it's a it's another character in the story of these people, like you know we have Labiche as he's sorting things out with his own men with like Didon Pesquette as far as like figuring plans out what are we gonna do and Christine, I think is another counterpoint to all of that and jean moreau I, I've seen her in a few of her films, and she's just always great to kind of see. I mean, she was a perfect face to include here as this worn, frustrated, ready-to-be-done-with-the-war hotelier who's just trying to get by and just doesn't want any more issues to come up, just wants to kind of move through it as quick as possible just to get on the other side. She lost her husband, and she carries the weight of all that so well, and the frustrations she has with Labiche and those conversations that they have. It's I mean it's heartbreaking. You really feel the emotions that she's putting out and you can really understand her perspective in all of this. And the these men just keep playing these games and it just ends up hurting everybody else. And but it is it's touching to kind of see her come around and realize there is some value here and that even the station master was willing to die for it. And you know, it just I mean I I really enjoyed her performance and her role in the film.
1: What do you know of Jean Moreau. Have you seen a lot of her films? She's done a lot of stuff, uh, but I I have to admit, I have not seen very many films of hers.
0: Yeah, I've only seen a few of them, things like The 400 Blows, uh, which is a small role in that one. Um, I know she's done a number of films with Truffaut. Uh, I saw Orson Welles' The Trial that she had been in. I feel like there have been a couple others throughout her career, but I think mostly the other ones that I really remember are ones that she did later in her career, like she popped up in Love Actually, and she popped up in La Femme Nikita, Nikita, and uh, what is the other one? Ever After. Ever After, right, that was the other one. So she popped up in some things like that, but it's largely some of those films that I've seen where she's smaller roles that I've ended up seeing, but somebody who I enjoy when I do get to watch her on screen in in uh some things did you ever
1: see i think we've t- we might have mentioned this on the show before until the end of the world 1991 vim vendors
0: that's that's another one yeah I really enjoy that film
1: that's another one she was in and uh with william hurt and i really i weirdly uh, talk about counter-programming for pete i really enjoyed that movie a lot
0: yeah. 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 It's a great one. So good.
1: Yeah. She's, she's great. And I think you're right. She, she really nails the sort of that fulcrum point in this film where she is, she exists between all these sides and just wants people to stop fighting because her hotel business is suffering. Although, you know, to what end, right? Like, is she, is she profiting by having the Germans continue to come in and out of her hotel? Like, is that, does that make her relationship with the occupation that much more complicated? I don't know.
0: Well, and, you know, I mean, I, I know, like, you say that, but I don't think that she's looking at it from purely a capitalistic perspective. Like, no, I don't think so, I, I think there's a lot more, like, I think she's approaching these situations from a capitalist perspective, because that seems to be the only way she can get by with these conversations with the Germans and those who are occupying and everything. But really, I think so much more of the depth of everything she's going through comes out in the subtext in those scenes and we really kind of understand her perspective later when we find out her husband had been killed and things like that and we get a better sense of who she is and that she's just wanting to get through all this and wants this occupation to end
1: yeah right other people on Labisha's a team you know we mentioned charles melode who's another one who's been in just kind of a lot of stuff um, and I don't feel like I've seen, he's, he ends up being a, a total face to me, It'd be you, I wouldn't be able to tell you what else I've seen him in now besides the train.
0: I enjoy largely a lot of these people that they pull in. Um, I don't know what I've seen much of them in general, other than like Michelle Simone, who I just watched, uh, recently a film, you know, as we've been going Through these different series, I've been kind of watching some other films from those same years to kind of look at what else has been released to see if it perhaps fits in. Like he did Port of Shadows in 1939, uh, which is a really beautiful, very interesting film. He was in Panic in 1946. That uh, was one of the ones that I said um, certainly would fit in with, you know, kind of our 40s category. It's just a really fascinating film and he's the lead in that. Just a great film. Definitely worth checking out. So he's the face of them that I recognized the most, and I thought he uh, was just, I mean, he was fantastic as Papa Bull. A lot of faces. It's all great. We
1: talked about um, Lancaster doing his own stunts, but really that's another thing that this movie is, is known for is the fact that they used a lot of real trains, and it made everything look very, very big.
0: Well, and that's, I think, There is some interesting element of that to just talking about Frankenheimer in general, because I mean, this is a person who came from the background of live television. And when you look at kind of how he directs this, there's there is this uh, kind of direct approach to just kind of the way things are portrayed you know you've got the the bombing raids and you've got the the all of the stuff going on like it's blocked in a way to kind of build the tension with all of the little bits of minutia that have to happen like you got to hop off and you got to hit the little switch to get the train onto the different track and like all the things that the they're doing like we really get a sense of building the tension through the way that he's kind of depicting all of these things and just like the black and white the starkness i think all of that works well to kind of capture everything with how real it is with these trains i mean they have they destroyed several trains in reality like and not to mention many cameras in the process of filming the train wrecks and it just feels like we're right there like when you have that camera like when the train crashes into the one that's blocking the tracks and you just have that low camera close to the ground and you just see the whole thing like barreling right toward the camera like you know that that was one of the cameras that got destroyed but damn it made for some really incredible incredible footage and i think like just the realism of all of that paired with uh frankenheimer's direction and the action and knowing that you're you know we're watching lancaster like really running and jumping onto these trains and all this sort of stuff i mean we're, really, we're getting some intense stuff that i think just builds incredibly well with the way that uh, frankenheimer is putting all of this together the one thing that stuck out to me
1: was when they throw the switches particularly in the switch house right when they have the whole row of switches back and forth and one gets stuck because the pipe under it the way they throw those switches looks very very easy like it is just incredibly easy to just featherweight pull those switches they're down on the tracks they jump off the train they're throwing switches they look very very easy those guys must be made of muscle because they are switch train switches are not easy (laughs) to throw and i found myself thinking i think i would embarrass
0: myself throwing those train switches they're a lot of work it's a lot of metal not having thrown one before i I can't speak to Exactly. But it looks, I mean, there's something that was really magical about that whole dance anyway, because you're getting a sense of like, sure, there's p- perhaps some complexity and definitely need some muscle in the process of throwing these switches. But also, it involves a man up there with binoculars, watching what's going on, making sure the trains are in the right spots to tell them to throw a particular switch, having to know, okay, we've got to hit switch three, having the switch guy doing the switches. Like, it was, it was a beautiful choreography of all of that. And then to kind of brilliantly, like we had planted that pipe a few minutes earlier, like that had been tossed by the the German and then finding out that they had used that as a ploy to kind of create this entire scenario. It was just, I mean, it was fantastic. And it makes you wonder, like, what was Lancaster's plan up to that point where he saw the pipe as the opportunity, you know? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I thought
1: it was just great that that you're absolutely right. Thinking about that dance when he is on uh, the binoculars is extraordinary. You know, throw five, throw 10. Uh, it just it, incredible attention to very, very fine lines. Being able to see where those tracks need to be thrown is, is a real expert job.
0: I thought that was fun. Really fun. It's wizardry. And I think a lot of it speaks to, I mean, just kind of, I think fitting in line with what we've been talking about with all of this, uh, just you know the way that the cinematographers worked to put this film together. This was shot by two cinematographers, uh, Jean Tournier and Walter Woditz. I don't know if I'm saying either of those names right, but Jean Tournier, at least, is one that I'm more familiar with because, uh, aside from this, also worked on the brilliant The Day of the Jackal, which is fantastic, especially in just kind of the the cinematic comparison between the two i think you could really draw kind of with very much kind of a much more straightforward realism style that i think speaks strongly to both of those and then of course jumping onto crazy things like moonraker and so it's kind of you know some some uh, kind of a big jump from that one but i i think that the cinematography here especially again working in black and white with what we're seeing here i just think it, I mean, it's an interesting choice to look at this film as something that was shot in black and white because with the paintings, with the action and everything, you can really see why they may have wanted to do this in color. But I think just the black and white lends to this, uh, this real intense, like, I don't know, it just feels like in a world of smoke and trains and grease, and like you see Lancaster just drenched in all the grease from the work and everything, it just ends up feeling like this film is appropriately black and white because of the world we're in.
1: And expert use of it. I mean, it just feels really resonant. And and I think, you know, I, there's something about looking at... I was thinking about the the um, Peter Jackson. So, yeah, you know, he came up with all this incredibly smart stuff that uh, allows us to AI our way into taking World War I footage and smoothing it and colorizing it and making it look like Speed it was shot correcting. on... Today's camera, yeah, speed correcting all of that stuff, and and when it came out a couple of years ago, I took my father in law. We went and we saw that in the theater, and it was a an incredible experience. And also, it it didn't feel like it happened anymore, right? Like modernizing it, it was there was some stuff that's just gruesome and horrifying and feels so resonant. But because our brains are tuned to seeing history the way history looked at the time, I think uh, it it actually. Um, It was beautiful. It was an exercise in technology that was incredible, and it it might have done a little bit of a disservice to our sense memory of what that time is, because we grew up with seeing the footage on the technology as it was created. This movie, I think making the choice to go black and white, gave it a sense of action that made it feel more real to me, because that's what I'm used to looking at war footage looking like does that make am i making a case
0: no i think that's a very strong case especially at the time coming from people who had been used to seeing world war ii footage that was broadcast in newsreels and stuff at the starts of movies in black and white like people were used to seeing black and white footage depicting world war ii like that was kind of the way it had been portrayed outside of like you know, the John Wayne movies and things like that. But when you're looking at like the news footage, it was black and white. And so this fits very much with knowing that Frankenheimer came from TV when you get a sense that this is black and white and it just ends up feeling much more newsreel raw than something that John Wayne would be in. Yeah, I think that's it.
1: For, that's one of the things for me, that that sort of sensibility of the film that feels it, it takes me to the place. It feels more uh, accurate of the time
0: yeah yeah very true. We do have I think some pretty great music for this by Maurice Jarre that I think fits the film. It's not something you really walk out humming, but what i I find really powerful. And this might speak to a little give us a chance to talk about the end of the film. You have this great theme that kind of builds through the film and then at the end, as we're looking at just these still shots of the boxes of paintings just laying on the side of the the hill there next to the train, and all the dead bodies of the of the hostages that they had killed also just laying there <sighs> in the grass on the side of the hill. And then you see Labiche just kind of walking off by himself down the road. You just have the the theme singled out in a lone harmonica that just kind of plays. And it just becomes this kind of haunting reflection of everything that had gone on, all of the action, all of the resistance and everything just left with, again, boxed paintings. We're not even seeing the paintings still. You know, it's just like boxes with names on them paired with all of this stuff and i think it just like what a way to end a film when we're contemplating this idea of what these these humans are doing in order to save artwork and then we're seeing this very literal comparison of the dead humans that it took to get these pieces of art laying here and it's just i mean what a strong powerful way to kind of end a film that really leaves us as an audience kind of questioning everything yeah,
1: I I think so too, I, and and just the uh, yeah overall use of sound, I think in the movie is really extraordinary. But that's that the way they, the way they play with the music, and it just it got me looking at at the Jare, dynasty. Right, I mean uh, Kevin Jarret was an actor and a director and producer. He passed away, but Jean Michel Jarret is <laughs> it's just a fantastic and sort of crazy testament to the legacy of f- families in film and his music is
0: also kind of extraordinary. Maurice Jarre, I mean, this is coming just a few years after the incredible, incredible score for Lawrence of Arabia, which is um, perhaps one of his greats, you know, certainly. But, I mean, it is a a very rich career full of amazing music. The, uh, you know, worked with David Lean over the years all the way into you know the 80s and 90s with things and we've talked about him on like jacob's ladder and he also did ghost which is you know a very famous score of his and um uh, just i i think Jarre's scores i mean look at stuff like dead poet society and but and then fatal attraction and witness it was just all over the place with just some amazing amazing film music
1: well yeah 178 composer credits like it, it just Sort of breaks my brain a little bit, especially like when I talked to my uh, used to talk to my grandmother and would talk to her about the the just the scope of time that she saw. Like, look at what guys like Jare saw in the evolution of film scoring. Like, that's an entire universe of change uh, of and and extraordinary scores for for films across entirely different generations of filmmaking. That's just incredible. Yeah. Incredible.
0: Amazing stuff.
1: Yeah, it's amazing stuff. What else you got? Anything else you want to hit on? You want to teach me about this movie?
0: I feel like we've covered a lot of material with this. I mean, it's just, it's an incredibly strong film. It just gets better every time. I think Lancaster is such an interesting figure to play this character. And I appreciate, you know, we didn't really talk about the fact that this is kind of one of those films uh, Lancaster had been producing at the time with his little Uh, production company, and this was one of the films of that period that he had released that uh, I think just speaks to an actor really working hard to find strong projects to back that, um, you know, were more than just an opportunity to be, you know, a star on the silver screen. So that brings us to why we're here today, I think. Yes, BAFTA's 1965 nominees for best film from any source. All right. This is this is the end, right? Yeah, our final uh final episode for this series. We talked about Beckett, we dropped our Dr. Strange love conversation back into the mix. Uh we talked about The Pumpkin Eater and here we are with The Train. Again, this is not just best british films this is basically anything was up for grabs so do you have anything else from 1964 that you're like well I definitely would have thought that film should have been included on this list it's hard for me to just throw movies <laughs> into this
1: list but what give me a give me a sense what are the movies that you throw in to 1964
0: yeah i always jump into my letterboxed list and then i look at okay let's go to 19 my list from 1964 what have i seen mary poppins that's that's the easiest way to look Uh, you know stuff like yeah mary poppins uh absolutely the naked kiss for sure i enjoyed the americanization of, of emily quite a bit i thought that was great fail safe was a great film goldfinger when you're looking at james bond God, absolutely goldfinger sure yeah a fistful of dollars nothing but a man 7 days in may 7 days in may you know we've talked about uh um the other version of the killers which uh is <laughs> i kind of love that one too um one of my favorites that we haven't really brought up at all but i absolutely think should have been included is the film séance on a wet afternoon unfortunately is a difficult film to track down over here I, I take that back actually it's on playing on the criterion channel uh and max right now but it wasn't when i first tracked it down i had to buy a disc from england in order to watch it but it's well worth it because it is a brilliant film so it's a strong year lot of a lot of strong nominees so if you had to restrict it to just four where would you land
1: I just want to throw in a shot in the dark too. If we're going to get Doctor Strange Love, then throwing in a shot in the <laughs> dark is is not is not too far afield. So
0: I really need to rewatch that one. I haven't seen it in oh, so uh, probably since probably since high school. You know, I I
1: really I like the movies that are are in this list. I think I I enjoyed my experience with the movies that are in this list. I think I would probably throw in Mary Poppins just because of what it has become, and I think it was. I don't know what it was like opening day on Mary Poppins as a, as a family film, but but it, it feels important. I would probably throw in I don't know what do you I mean what are your hard passes? Is that it? I think that might be it.
0: I, I also forgot to mention The Pawnbroker, which is a Sydney Lumet film. That may be, I, I haven't watched it um, since I started letterboxing. I need to revisit that one. It's been on my list forever. That may be another five star from the year. If I'm just looking strictly at how I've rated films, Mary Poppins and Doctor Strange Love are the two five star films I have from the year. And then I have Failsafe, Nothing But a Man, Seance on a Wet Afternoon, and Goldfinger as four and a half stars. Oh, and The Train, I would uh, also include in that list of five stars. We haven't gotten to that point yet, but I, I would put it up there, too. So, I mean, God, if I had to just go off of what I have, either five or four and a half stars, I'd probably say Mary Poppins, Doctor Strange*, *Love The Train, and Seance on a Wet Afternoon. That's probably what I would pick as mine, my best films from any source.
1: I do have one more to add from 1964, which is a film called The Incredibly Strange Creatures Who Stopped Living and Became Mixed-Up Zombies, exclamation point, exclamation point, question mark. (laughs) Why did I watch that movie? That's a real movie, and I did watch it, and it is a terrible, terrible movie, but uh, I watched it, and I reviewed it. I have a review in it. I wouldn't put that on this
0: list. So funny. Uh, But that's why we're here. And what ended up winning? Dr. Strangelove of the four ended up winning. And that's what I would pick as well. You know, it didn't end up doing nearly as well at at the Oscars, as we talked about on our episode. But it did well at the BAFTAs, and it did take the win out of these four films here. Okay. Kind of a bummer
1: we didn't talk about it right now. I know it's in our feed, but I'd like to watch that again. I need another excuse to watch that movie. I don't need an excuse to do anything. I'm a grown man. I can watch a movie when (laughs) I want to watch a damn movie stop the show we're putting it
0: on right now <laughs> <laughs> all right well uh, let's uh, let's call it quits there with this episode so we'll be right back but first our credits
1: the next reel is a production of true story fm engineering by andy nelson music by martin Oriol novella and eli catlin Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show.
0: Yeah.
1: One from National Lampoon's European Vacation. Why is that so popular?
0: <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of rusties taking trips to Europe?
1: We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com. Slash merch.
0: Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations, so visit the slash merch today. And as always,
1: thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats
0: coming your way.
1: All right, how to do an award season besides losing that very special BAFTA.
0: Yeah, exactly. It did get nominated over the Oscars for Best Writing, Story, and Screenplay, uh, written directly for the screen, but it lost to the film Darling, which is another really, uh, really interesting, really strong film from the year. Really great year, honestly. There are a lot of strong films from 1964 as you kind of walk through them. We talked about the BAFTAs already. Uh, At the Motion Picture Exhibitor Magazine's Laurel Awards, uh, Lancaster was nominated for Best Action Performance, but I think, fittingly, lost to Sean Connery in Goldfinger. And then, of course, the National Board of Review did put it on its top 10 films of the year. So I I think people probably were thinking this was more of an action film, and so it didn't necessarily fit the awards needs, the awards circles. But I think with time, people have really kind of started respecting this action film more, finding a lot more to it. It's because
1: they actually realized Lancaster actually slid down that ladder thing three stories and jumped on a <laughs> high-speed train. That was extraordinary. Yeah. And then they thought, oh, this should win stuff. Exactly. Uh, all right. Well, how to do with the box office.
0: Well, Frankenheimer's gripping war film cost $5.8 million to make, which is about $55.7 in today's dollars. The movie opened in France, September 24th, 1964, then the UK, October 29th, 1964, before finally opening in the States, March 7th, 1965, officer Warhol's art film Empire, and the murderous drama Nightmare in the Sun. The movie went on to earn $6.8 million, or $65.3 million in today's dollars, that landed the film in the black with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $75,000. You go, Frankie. Not bad. <laughs> Nobody else called him Frankie but me. <laughs>
1: uh this was great i'm really glad we talked about it i'm glad to have been introduced to it what a just incredibly fun movie about some very hard things
0: it's uh one that only gets better with each subsequent watch so i'm glad that you have seen it i'm glad to have revisited it and it's definitely a film i'm already looking forward to watching again so with that, we'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie. Kicking off our next series, the 1976 Hugo Awards Best Dramatic Presentation nominees. We are looking at LQ Jones's A Boy and
2: His Dog. Charles Champlin of the Los Angeles Times says, A coherent, alternate world. Kind of a funny nightmare recited as upcoming fact. It is an offbeat delight. KMET Radio, Los Angeles. Gripping, horrific, a bitter vision of tomorrow. Tightly controlled, compelling, bizarre, and witty. Time Magazine's Richard Schickel says, Ironic, risks being absurd yet compels respect for some witty writing and well-paced direction. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times says, Wacky success, weird, offbeat. Unique, magnificently inspired. Richard Eder of the New York Times says, brilliantly grotesque. The Austin Sun. This may be the best science fiction film ever made. A Boy and His Dog. A film that has become a cult legend. Right now I'm hungry and I want to get laid. That's what you always say. You go find a chick and I'll hustle us up some food. I can't do good work when I'm hungry. You ain't pulling that crap on me again. And you can shove that part about how you lost the ability to hunt for food when you learned how to talk. No food, no females. After World War IV, your dog will tell you what to do. How to laugh, how to love, how and who to kill. That stupid broad. (laughs) <laughs> you're so funny when you're sexually frustrated. Damn it. How when the hell am I going to nail her in there? Simple. Stop shaking like a leaf and go do it. If you continue to find the food for your dog, he will find you a woman. He is the only one who can. Give him the girl. We stay. Now, you got any helpful suggestions? Yes, pull up your pants, Romeo. In the future, your dog will tell you how to survive. Or you will die. Our women can't get pregnant every once in a while. We need new blood. Horse manure. You mean you want me to knock up your broad? Well, I can respect the wrong attitude, failure to obey authority. Now, oh, get the dramatic catch out of your voice and tell me how she's going to carry her share of the load up here. Tell me how we're going to fight her. All right, up. okay, okay, just don't hang her. Harangue, not hang her.
1: I don't care, whatever the hell it is. You just knock off the crap and we can forget the whole stinking. Well, maybe hand. we
2: should, you simple dumb putts. What the hell's a putt? What's a putt? Is that something bad? i bet it is. It's something bad. You, boy, I'll tell you, you better watch your stinking mouth or I'm going to kick you in the butt. If you can imagine an excuse for World War IV, you will understand a talking dog. Try to get back as quick as I can. Will you wait? For a while. Then, over the hill. I'll miss you, pig. I'll really miss you. LQ Jones. A boy and his dog. A film that has become a legend by word of mouth. Redidar.
1: It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
0: You're telling me producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered.
1: Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions.
0: The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links supports the show.
1: In season 13, we explore various awards categories and the films nominated in them.
0: We wrapped up our 1940 Best Picture series with adaptations of Mice and Men from John Steinbeck and Wuthering Heights from Emily Bronte's novel, not to mention the play Dark Victory by George Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. The
1: 1947 Academy Award adapted screenplay series featured Anna and the King of Science. I Am, based on Margaret Langdon's book, plus The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers.
0: The 1952 cinematography nominees included Death of a Salesman and a Streetcar Named Desire, A Place in the Sun, based on both a play and a book, and Strangers on a Train, based on Patricia Highsmith's first novel.
1: So many great movies based on books and plays, like Beckett, The Pumpkin Eater,
0: A Boy and His Dog, Rollerball, The Princess Bride, Congo, The Scarlet Letter, Jackie Brown, The Deep End, The Gray, The Woman in Black, and Top Gun Maverick, which I'm very much looking forward to revisiting. Get the source books at
1: thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read or reread from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today. You know, I haven't seen this one either. What? Boy and his dog. My goodness. Yeah. I know.
0: This is let me just sit let me just warn you this film it's a definitely a kind of a a uh, dark depiction of the post-apocalyptic world dark in this in the way <laughs> in the way um men think about women i suppose you could say it's uh it is it's is pretty gross but that was kind of uh, i think harlan ellison's point yeah in the in the writing of it and i think that's one of the interesting things about the film it kind of grossed me out when i first watch it but now knowing a little bit more about it i'm definitely looking forward to getting into it but just knowing that going in i think might help (laughs) okay does it what happens to dogs
1: Is there a dog thing that I have to worry about? Like, is there an old yeller level level dog thing?
0: Just know that in the future, because of the apocalypse, dogs now, at least this dog, has the ability to mentally, uh, to like mental telepathy, communicate with our boy. But the dog also cannot do anything, like he can't hunt or or get food on his own. He relies on the boy to get food for him. So he's very smart talking dog who needs the boy to feed him
1: which obviously there's going to be a heartstrings pulled it's not necessarily a heartstring pulling sort of movie is it a it's a it's a thing they shoot the boy at the end is that the deal they shoot the boy in there's a real subversion of the old yeller grief <laughs> the dog shoots the boy
0: <laughs> stop talking about it. let's have... <laughs> okay that's all oh my gosh oh my gosh
1: Letterboxd, Dandy. How do you handle Letterboxd for the
0: drain? Is it one star per car? It's a, <laughs> one star per car they paint. No, I <laughs> um it's a film that gets better each time. I was surprised at myself when I went back and looked at my original review of this. I gave it uh, I gave it only three and a half stars. And it's funny because in my recollection, I was like, oh, it's a five star. F- you know film like it's i it it works so well for me and so i was surprised and i think what happened is just like i wasn't sure what to make of it on my initial reaction and then my as the more i thought about it it always improved i just never went back and changed my rating but it's an easy now as i walked in and then just watching it it's an easy five-star film just it's so strong so powerful so that's where i sit with this one
1: yeah, it's absolutely a five-star for me, too. I And just on first watch, it's fine. It's fine living right there. It's a great film. I really enjoyed my time with it, and I I do. I can't wait to put this on. Watch it again.
0: Remember, you can find us over at Letterboxd. I'm at Soda Creek Film. Pete is at Pete Wright. And you can check out our five-star and hearts reviews for this film, along with everything else we have reviewed. And, of course, the show is at The Next Reel. So what did you think about the train? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. (laughs) Letterboxd
1: giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. I went high-ish and short. It's high and short. Mine too. Four stars on a heart is where I like Is it, it. funny? Is yours funny? Uh, maybe.
2: Okay, funny-ish. we're going to have
1: maybe a little funny off. Let's see uh-huh. which letterbox reviewer gives us a bigger chuckle. You go first.
0: I've got four stars by Koi Vin who says, Frankenheimer asks why we fight, but also he asks, what if we blow up a train yard? Okay, that was pretty good.
1: That was pretty good. Uh, go, you're going in strong. Okay. I come with Will Menikers, four and a half star who says, In the waning days of the Nazi occupation, heroic French railroad workers attempt to stop the theft of France's cultural heritage, a train loaded with thousands of racist cartoons. <laughs> that was funny, right? That was pretty funny. It was pretty funny. <laughs> All right, I think Coy probably has it.